This talk was given by Susan Sayan Wilder at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sayan is a lay senior in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Hello, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name is Sayan, and I'm a lay practitioner here at the monastery. I'm really glad to be here with all of us practicing together. Part of our training as senior lay students is to give talks. So I am grateful to all of you for supporting my training. If this talk is at all helpful to you, it is the teachings talking. If this talk is confusing or unclear, it is saying speaking. So I apologize in advance for anything unclear or confusing. This talk is dedicated to my teacher, Shugun Roshi, with boundless gratitude, and to all the teachers that I have had the good fortune to encounter, and to all the teachings that I have been blessed to be offered and to have learned from. In addition, I would like to express my deepest gratitude to my family who have supported my practice over these many years. My leaving home time and again to practice and train in this precious practice would not have been possible without my family's continuous and ongoing support. It was not, and it is not, easy on any of them, and so I am endlessly grateful. For those of you who know me, you know I love this practice, and I love the Dharma. I deeply love this practice and the Dharma. So what motivates me to practice? For me, at this time in my life, looking at 68 years old, my motivation to practice is devotion, faith, and gratitude. However, I would like to be perfectly clear, it has not always been this way. For a long, long time, my motivation to practice was desperation, confusion, anxiety, and fear. Being caught in endless drama and reactivity and having no idea or experience that there was another way to live or to be. The first time I heard the Dharma, it was like a penny dropped. Wow! No apologizing, no defending, no making excuses, just laying it out, identifying simply and clearly life is suffering. Suffering for all of us, no one excluded. And then there was more. It doesn't have to be this way. There is a way to be free from suffering. I was stunned. It was compelling, and something rang true for me. 
on closer inspection, I realize that, in fact, yes, it really is this way, this fact of suffering. Regardless of how much money we do or we don't make, regardless of our life circumstances, where we live, where we don't live, everyone, without exception, experiences suffering. Each and every one of us experiences getting what we don't want and not getting what we do want. And when we get a glimmer of what we want, we grasp, we cling, we become a contortionist trying desperately to hold on to or recreate whatever we tasted that was so sweet. We want more. We want it again, and we feel crushed, anxious, sad, as it disappears. The Buddha said very straightforwardly, a matter of fact, birth ends in death, youth will end in old age, meetings will end in separation, wealth will end in loss. All things in cyclic existence, are transient and impermanent. So, how do we take up this profound, unsugar-coated offering of reality of what is true? This fact of truth is what most people spend their life running from, and denying that it's true, while trying to make it otherwise. How are we actually able to feel release, contentment, and peace within this world of confusion, anxiety, uncertainty, and pain? For me, the journey of going from desperation to devotion, from confusion to gratitude and faith, developed through what we are all sharing together at this moment. The opportunity to train, to train together, to practice with each other, to meet with our teachers, and to use this precious vehicle to come alive and connect to ourselves and connect to each other. For me, what was so initially motivating and remains true to this day, is the sensation of whispers traveling through my body, which these days truly are more often like shouts, saying that these teachings and this practice is true and real, and it is life transformative. Experiencing something is as true and real, is something we all long for. Unfortunately, many of us live a life that feels otherwise. When I first encountered the Dharma, this resonance of experiencing something true and real was something I had never known before. This fleeting but real sensation fueled my desire and motivation Throughout Sashin, all of us work very, very hard 
The form and schedule are challenging. Our minds are often confused, tired, and busy, busy, busy. The past, the present, the future show up again and again. It can be, and often is, exhausting. Our minds and our bodies are not so happy. This training is not so easy. In spite of this, though, something within us is deeply touched, deeply moved. We see and feel whispers of possibility that we can free ourselves from our conditioned patterns and habits. As we move deeper and deeper into session and hear and practice and absorb the teachings, the teachings become alive and begin to reveal themselves to us. Over the years, as a lay practitioner, I have struggled with bringing these teachings into and thoroughly integrating them into my life. For me, one of the most difficult challenges of practice was session ending. After practicing so earnestly and intently during session, it was extremely difficult to bring into my life the heart-mind I had experienced during session. Once I left this precious container, it felt exceedingly challenging, often not doable, to seamlessly live and bring into my day-to-day relationships and responsibilities all that I worked so hard at cultivating during my time of practice. As a wife, a mother, a friend, a clinician, when session ended, although my intentions were real and heartfelt, I would find that often I would get hijacked by my strong emotions, get easily triggered into reactivity, latch on to my judgmental mind and all that comes with it. I would find myself up to my neck in alligators and feel really confused and saddened that I was repeating old patterns. I'm confident we're all familiar with this. The challenge of our solid sense of self, our habitual habits and patterns, our judgments, our reactivity, finger-pointing, and conditioning is a force to reckon with. Living in the world, being in a family, working at jobs day to day, while attempting to make our life an expression of our practice is no small task. All of this training and practice that we do is merely to enable us to come home to our awakened, pure nature. Everything offered to us during our week of training of session is skillful means to help us encounter our own boundless, innate, loving, 
compassionate body-mind. This is our innate essence. This is our birth endowment. So how do we stay connected to what is so precious and true when the support and container offered by Sushin ends? We come up against our conditioned self and our old habits again, again, and again. My favorite description of the challenge of what it is like to attempt to transform our conditioned self and habits is given by Kandra Rinpoche, one of the foremost meditation teachers alive today. She says, there is a huge enemy army with thousands of forces well-equipped with all the modern gadgets, guns, missiles, and so on. And I send you into war against the army by yourself, armed only with a potato peeler. It's a very good potato peeler, she says. (laughs) Really effective for peeling many potatoes. But there you stand in front of an army of thousands that are equipped with modern weapons. This image can be very helpful when we are assessing ourselves. We need to be significantly humbled by the challenge and the force of our conditioned, solid sense of self and all our deeply ingrained patterns, our habits, and the reactivity that gets us into trouble time and again. For me, encountering the profound teaching that is called the four thoughts that transform the mind provided a support and guidance in bringing my practice to life. Daito Roshi used to say so frequently, seamless practice, no walls, practice so nothing separates our intention our zazen from our life, he would say over and over again, bring the Buddha to life. I would love when he would say that, and then I would feel helpless against my own deeply ingrained habits and reactivity. I would be holding only a potato peeler against the forces of my own conditioned self. Pema Chodron says, If one wishes suffering not to happen to the people and to the earth, it begins with a kind heart. Today, I would like to tell you about this Dharma teaching, the four thoughts that transform the mind. This teaching helps me to bring to life the connectedness and kind heart that we aspire to. I have found keeping this teaching tucked into my heart like a user's manual. It helps protect me from getting hijacked by my solid sense of self that causes me to feel separate, to act unkindly, and to inflict pain on others. 
The four thoughts that transform the mind, Khandra Rinpoche says, are essential in bringing wisdom to a common, ordinary mind submerged in deluded thoughts and habitual tendencies. I hope you find this teaching as helpful in bringing your practice into daily life as it has been for me. Songkhapa Rinpoche, a renowned 13th century Tibetan scholar and meditation teacher, whose teachings led to the formation of the Gelug school of Tibetan Buddhism, is quoted as saying, The teachings of the Dharma should be regarded first and foremost as practical advice for life rather than merely intellectual speculations. These teachings, the fourth thoughts that transform the mind, for me, are a closely held practical guide as I live my life outside the holding vessel of session. I have found that when I get derailed by my habits, hijacked by those parts of myself that I can't believe are still so thoroughly alive and well within me, that if I am able to invoke one or more of the four thoughts, I am often able to bring myself back to my practice, back to my heart, my intention, and my aspiration. Chokinima Rinpoche has said, if we take these four insights into our heart, then everything and anything becomes the path. But if we do not take these four into our hearts, nothing will ever become the path. Keeping these four thoughts present in my heart is an aid to keep my practice alive moment to moment, regardless of where I might find myself. First of the four thoughts is to reflect on the preciousness of human existence. When we take a pause to look around at all the possibilities of what we could be born as, we see how remarkably fortunate we are to have taken a human birth. Add to that our good fortune in encountering the Dharma, which holds the key to our freedom from suffering, we start to taste how precious it really is. This dharma offers us the possibility to awaken to our true nature and experience the nature of reality, to live and to be embodied and be connected in our lives. This is the potential of the preciousness of human birth. We, of all beings and realms, have consciousness and the capacity to transform our circumstances. Of all beings, this human form is the only form where there is such a possibility. Having encountered this dharma, we have the capacity to find freedom within this life, to put our minds and our hearts at rest and at ease, and to be a service to others. Our practice affords us this very opportunity to awaken to our true nature, which is within each of us. 
Only through human birth is this possible. To reflect on this softens our hearts and opens us up and makes us grateful. Kantra Rinpoche describes the preciousness of human birth in this way. She says, The treasury of qualities lie within loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, not looking outside for love. These are inherent within precious human birth, sitting, being confident, and at ease with this. This is our life's work. The second of the four thoughts to reflect on and support us in bringing our practice to life is recognition of impermanence. Can we look impermanence in the eye with an open heart? Everything, absolutely everything, is impermanent. How do we perceive and experience impermanence? How do we let it in and feel it in our bones? Do any of us know how much time we have left? Do we notice that absolutely everything is constantly changing? Are we able to notice this and not resist, grasp, or cling? Not so easy. How can we love what we have and not grasp or cling to it? How do we not deny or resist what we dislike and be present in the experience of whatever we are encountering? For me, invoking the second thought that transforms the mind, impermanence is vital. Everything, absolutely everything, is impermanent. To invoke this truth helps us in the moment of whatever we are caught up in. Mingyur Rinpoche says, as we cannot separate water from ice, we cannot separate impermanence from phenomena. Let me say that one more time. Because this really, as we cannot separate water from ice, we cannot separate impermanence from phenomena. The teachings tell us life is a wave coming from the ocean, constantly changing. Can we ride the wave, or are we fighting that intrinsic flow of life? This is how our practice and the teachings become a lifeboat. We feel ourselves starting to get hooked by what in the moment feels so real and solid. We notice our bodies getting charged up. We feel our reactivity starting to roll. We are about to get derailed, hijacked by our own conditioned selves. And then we hear our teachers whispering, seamless practice whispering in our ears. We hear the whispers. We remember our commitment in session to our practice, and we slow down, push the pause button, 
go to our breath, to our heart, and repeat to ourselves, everything is impermanent. This feeling will pass. The sensation will pass. Something will change. Stay open. Stay open-hearted. Stay present. Feel and breathe and bring life to the Buddha. The stability we all so desperately want is waiting for us, not in our relationships or work or in anything outside ourselves. All of that is in flux, constantly changing. The stability lies within us. There is nothing outside ourselves that we can rely on to be stable and permanent. The anchor is within. The anchor is our true nature, that which we truly, really are. In summing up impermanence, Kandra Rinpoche encourages us by saying, be clear about what is important and act in accordance with that. Take your contemplation on impermanence to heart, and you will find the strength and wisdom and courage to make the right choices. The power of impermanence, she says, will make it easier to drop anger, hatred, and jealousy, and will provide the strength to loosen the attachment. The third thought that transforms the mind is karma. Simply put, cause and effect. Or said another way, the law of interdependence. Nothing stands alone. Nothing is independent. Everything we say, do, and even think has an effect, has an impact. It is quite astonishing when we wake up to this truth plant a mango, you get a mango, not a potato. It sounds simple and obvious, and when we look at our lives, we are able to recognize the pervasive and undeniable truth of this. Shugen Roshi, at a Teisho given at Fire Lotus Zen Center, in talking about karma, said, I quote, the immutable law of karma is that no action goes without consequences. The intention of the action always goes into the consequence. Anger breeds anger, and generosity breeds generosity. Violence always leads to violence. Roshi quotes the 19th ancestor, Kumarata, who said, the shadows and echoes of every action Follow without a hair's breadth gap. Kumarata continues, the consequences of our actions follow us for 100, 1,000, 10,000 eons. Shugen Roshi says, it is never a question of that consequence or action bearing fruit. This is an immutable law. This is inescapable. It is the law of nature. If we are doubtful about this truth, perhaps each of us can look over our shoulder at the past and see how an action we took 
which was fueled by our old habits or conditioning, caused us to say or do something that we are now living with the consequences of today. It can be very painful and tender to look this deeply and directly. This is not to encourage feeling guilt or shame. Looking at our past ignorance and the resulting consequences of our actions is helpful to muster resolve to say to ourselves, never again will I repeat this kind of behavior. Let me act differently and obtain a different outcome. This is to completely open ourselves up to the truth that we all act out of conditioning. And seeing the truth of this motivates us to bring our practice to life and thereby change our habits and resulting karma. These practices can save us from our conditioning and reactivity and give hope and possibility for a future experience. We are not focusing on changing others. We are focusing on responding within the precepts of doing no harm, remembering that everything we say and do has a ripple effect and matters profoundly. We discover we are not victims, but players, all codependent in the web of our existence. The moment we recognize the codependent, interconnected web of our existence is the moment the entire dynamic shifts and our life opens. We get a glimpse of what is true and real. The impact of this in our life is truly astonishing. Our minds and our hearts open widely and tenderly. Ourselves and our lives change profoundly Starting to do this practice enhances our resolve to keep remembering time and again, time and again, cause and effect, cause and effect. What we say and do matters. It matters. It really matters. It is most important to keep in our minds that this is not a simplistic, in-the-moment cause and effect. It is way, way bigger than us. The teachings talk about the need for the causes and conditions to ripen. It is not our limited timeline. It is like planting a garden. All the causes and conditions must be present when we plant the seed the sun, the soil, the rain, not too much, not too little, but we need all of it. Have no doubt, though, the garden of our life has all the conditions necessary for every seed to bear fruit. It is just time until the harvest ripens. 
Shugen Roshi once said to me when I brought a particularly difficult tale to him, <clears throat> saying, he said, pointing his finger at me, it is as if you are standing on the beach looking at the horizon. It appears the world ends at the horizon and it only begins. He looked at me and said, it is way bigger than us. Trust it and don't try to understand it. I have kept his words like a beacon in my heart over the many years. The fourth thought that transforms the mind is suffering. Have we ever considered that when the Buddha began teaching, he did not speak of all the extraordinary and wondrous states he had experienced? His first and foremost teaching was on dissatisfaction, dukkha, suffering. Suffering is a universal experience of all of us since the beginning of time. The traditional teachings tell us life is like a razor blade covered in honey. We know honey is sweet. We go to lick it, anticipating its sweetness, feeling the yum in our bodies and minds, and then we discover what appeared so sweet is actually a razor blade we are licking. This is samsara. It looks, it feels so enticing. Yet when we go to grab it, (coughs) it's sharp. We bleed. What we thought was so desirable, so enticing, we find is disappointing. Not quite what we had imagined. We get frustrated and sad, and yet we do this over and over and over and over again, each time hoping for a different result, having an expectation that this one time we will find ultimate satisfaction and happiness. Something appears so desirable and so real in our delusion. And ouch, it's a razor blade covered by honey. We don't like what we get, and we get what we don't want. Is there anyone that does not encounter this truth? By turning to external circumstances to gain peace of mind, happiness, equanimity, patience, and love, we are reaching out to lick the razor blade covered in honey. And yet, all that we desire is within us, waiting for us to clear the debris covering our own goodness and brightness. Kantra Rinpoche clearly describes the causes of all karma and all suffering. She says very emphatically, we all suffer and create karma because of three delusions that we do over and over again as a result of our confused, deluded mind. 
She says, we make permanent that which is impermanent. We make independent that which is interdependent and co-created. And we make solid that which is empty. You get it? We make permanent that which is impermanent. We make independent that which is interdependent and co-created. And we make solid that which is empty. By repeatedly defaulting to making real that which is confusion and delusion, we create our karma and suffering. When I first started practicing, and for many decades thereafter, I was really convinced, certain actually, that when I heard freedom from suffering, I was hearing freedom from pain. I conflated, equated as the same, pain and suffering. I was convinced that if I practiced hard enough, long enough, I would be free from the pain and the anguish of this life. This is a common pitfall for all of us, thinking we will not feel pain if we practice. Suffering is not wanting pain. Suffering is wanting things to be different than they are. Pain is what makes us human. Pain makes us tender, compassionate, and open to others. When we are intimate with our own pain, when we are willing to put out the welcome mat to all that is within us and deeply explore it, we find that our pain is the same as what everyone else struggles with. Everyone. And so we are able to become compassionate and tender and loving to others because we see clearly what is common to all beings is within ourselves. Suffering keeps us separate. Pain connects and tenderizes us. All of us are in relationship with others. Those of us in lay life have multiple relationships between work, families, friends, and neighbors, along with all sorts of responsibilities. The monastics are in relationship with each other and with us, and with all the demands that result from such a commitment. Most of our problems arise as a result of interpersonal relationships. Ayakima, the first Western woman who was a Theravada monastic and teacher and who happens to be one of my heroes, has said, most of the times we torment ourselves with difficulties in families, in difficulties in our circle of friends and on the job. Our mind constantly tells us about all the things that don't suit it and usually fingers the guilty party, the person who's bothering us who doesn't want things the way we want them. But let's remember, she says, 
Whenever somebody else says or does something, it's a matter of his or her own karma alone. She closes by saying, only a reaction on our side creates our own karma. Just imagine what it would be if we were free to stand on the ground of reality and be free from reactivity, not hooked by our own negative emotional surges. Kindness and love is within all of us. This is our true nature. This is who we really are. Training together, bringing these teachings to life, enables us to take Daito Roshi's encouragement to heart to bring life to the Buddha. If we can remember these true teachings and invoke them and keep them in our heart when we are about to get overwhelmed, derailed, say something we will regret, act in a manner we will later feel badly about, if we can remember these encouragements, These true teachings, the fourth thoughts that transform the mind, teachings that have been passed down to us for over 2,000 years, we will find the contentment, peace, connectedness, well-being, and joy that we all long for. It is a true blessing that we can all practice and train together, that we have the privilege to hear these precious teachings. Let's not waste this rare opportunity to become the person we aspire to be and to be a help to others. By keeping these teachings within our hearts, the teachings can come to life throughout our being. By keeping in mind these four thoughts, we will be able to bring the heart-mind of session into our daily lives. Practicing these four thoughts, precious human existence, impermanence, karma, and suffering, will help us discover our true nature, allowing it to shine forth. Thanks so much for listening. The Monastery's quarterly journal, Mountain Record, has a new home at mountainrecord.org. For over 30 years, Mountain Record has been offering spiritual seekers of all faiths a unique journey through words and images. Each quarterly issue delivers a thought-provoking array of classic teachings, contemporary wisdom, stunning photographs, and news from the mountains and rivers order. For more information, to subscribe, or to read our open-access articles, visit mountainrecord.org.